Our second reading this morning comes to us from uh, chapter 15 of the book of Genesis. Listen for God's word to you. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vi- Abram in a vision and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you and your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O oh, sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit all my wealth. You've given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, No, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. Then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, Look up in the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we are in a conversation all this month um, uh, about the um, the Protestant Reformation, which took place 500 years ago, and that's really interesting if you're into history. 500 years is a big number. Um, uh, 500 years ago, this October 31st, the Augustinian monk Martin Luther nailed um, a list of 95 debating points um, on uh, the the door of the church castle, the uh, castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. And if you're into history, that's really neat. 500 years is a long time. But what we're doing uh, during this month is looking at what that actually means for us. Uh, is the Protestant Reformation still important in our lives? And so that's what we've been looking at. And the place we began, um, like the Reformers, was with Scripture. Because basically, nobody wants to hear your theories. Nobody wants to hear my theories about God. That what the Reformers stressed was that if my theories have any weight, they should be backed up by Scripture. And what they said is uh, not just kind of some interesting numerological thing where you take the, the number of the nouns and divide by the verbs or something and you come up with some fascinating fact about God, but just the plain meaning of what the Scripture says. Is it is it transparent what God is speaking through the pages of Scripture? So that's the first point that they stressed. The second point they they talked about was who is Jesus and what did he do? And what we saw is that Jesus is our high priest. He is a bridge builder. He's someone who connected us to God. And there's a, a lot of different metaphors in, in Scripture where it talks about what Jesus did. Uh, one of them is that idea of he built a bridge. Another one is that he knocked down a barrier that was between us and God. So there's different ways that it puts it. But basically the idea is that Jesus reconnected us to God, that we had been cut off from God and Jesus reconnected us, that we now have this bridge between us and God, and we can now approach God's throne and receive um, mercy and find find grace when we need it um, in time of trouble. So that's what we saw next. But then the next question was, okay, what's my role? What is what is my piece in this? What do I have to do? And the answer is nothing. You don't have to do anything. That's what we talked about last week. Jesus already built the bridge. You don't have to work your way to God, that there's no uh, religious system, there's no set of sacrifices or anything like that that we have to do in order to receive this. We simply have it as a gift, um, and that's what we talked about last week. And this week, we're kind of confronted with the question of, 
Yeah, but okay, now tell me what, what, what I really have to do. Because, because if Paul is talking to people, Paul, last week we looked at Paul talking to the Galatians, this week we're looking at Paul talking to the Romans, and they always have this question. Yeah, okay, I get the part about Jesus, but what's my role? What do I have to do in order to receive this um, relationship with, with God? What do I have to do? What's my role? And Paul keeps explaining in all of these letters that, no, really, that's it, that Jesus has already done it, and all you've got to do is trust that it that that he did. We just act as if it's true, and it is true. So that shouldn't get us in any trouble. And what Paul bumped into over and over again is people said, but that's not how religion works, Paul. You know how religion works. You go to the temple, you offer a sacrifice, you pour out a libation, you wear the certain clothes, you you eat the certain food, you observe certain days of the week or certain days of the year, you have festivals. There are a long list of things that you have to do. And that's what I'm asking for, Paul. Tell me what my piece of this uh, puzzle is. What, is. what is my role in this relationship with God? And Paul says, no, you just receive it. It's a, it's a gift from God. Just Act as if it's true because it is true. So just trust that God meant what he said when he gave us this this gift. And so that's the place Paul always finds himself. And so people said, but but that's not how that works, Paul. You know how religion works. And they said, and honestly, Paul, you know, I'm a Roman. I don't know too much about Judaism, but from what I've seen, Jews are the same way. You guys have a long list of rules too. And, um, and so I want to know what is my part in this equation. And Paul says, well... You may have heard about it that way. There's certainly a lot of misinformation about Judaism, just like there is about God. But that's not what our scriptures say. And so Paul points to um, Abraham. In, in our reading in Romans, Paul points to Abraham. And he picks Abraham, not because Abraham is some obscure picture, some, some guy from way back in the back of the, the Bible, but because Abraham is the very father of the Jewish nation. That, that there's nobody you could point to who has more prominence than Abraham um, except maybe David, so he throws in some things about David too. But he's saying these are who Jews look to for an understanding about what it means to have a relationship with with um, God. So he says, let's actually look at what um, what Abraham did. And he said, he said Abraham believed God, and God counted him as righteous because of his faith. So what I want to do now is actually walk through that that little section. We're going to unpack uh, Genesis 15 that Paul is quoting in the letter to the Romans. So we're going to see what Paul's getting at. So uh, it begins in Genesis uh, 15. It says, Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abraham in a vision. Abram. Later on, he gets his name changed, Abram, in a vision, and said to him, Do not be afraid, Abram, for I will protect you, and your reward will be great. Now at this point, Abraham hasn't done anything. God keeps coming to Abraham and saying, Abraham, I want to have a relationship with you. I'm going to give you descendants. I'm going to give you a land of your own. I'm going to bless you in all these different ways. And um, that's just a gift to you, Abraham. And so he does that. And now this is the third time he's spoken to Abraham. And um, he does so. He comes to Abraham, not because Abraham prayed to God, not because Abraham uh, went to the temple and made a sacrifice, just because God sought out Abraham and said, I want to bless you. So uh, that tends to underscore what Paul is getting at. But Abraham replies, O sovereign God, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Abraham complains to God. He says, yeah, there's all these promises and you've been fulfilling them. 
you know, I still don't have a land, but I've got all kinds of uh, wealth and property and so forth, um, and you've helped me protect that from the neighbors who are going to steal it. But what good are these blessings if I don't have anybody to pass them on to? Because part of what you promised me was was a descendant. And there's a little note here. If you want to have the kind of faith Abraham had, you can complain to God. Okay? That's not just people with bad faith. That's people with great faith. Abraham has great faith. And what does he do? He complains to God. So um, you can complain to God too. And really, you might as well because God knows what you're thinking. Right? You're not going to hide it from him. So so go ahead and complain to God. If you're a, if you're a, a verbal processor like me, you may actually understand better what you think after you've done that. But you're not going to get in any deeper with God, right? God already knows what you're thinking. So be like Abraham. Explain to, to God what your problem is. That God, you promised me a bunch of stuff, and sure, you've been fulfilling it one thing after another, but there's still the one thing I've got my heart set on that you haven't done yet. So um, he says, I don't even have a son. But then he does something I think a lot of us are tempted to do. He kind of tries to let God off the hook. Right? God promised him a son. God promised him a descendants uh, uh, to become a whole nation that the world would be blessed through. But Abraham kind of says, it's been a while. God hasn't done what I was hoping God would do, so I'm going to let God off the hook. He says, I guess what you really meant was my, my uh, uh, servant will inherit everything for me. Right? That all these things you've given me, I guess I should start you know, doing some estate planning and figuring out a way to shift all these assets to Eleazar of Damascus, because I'm going to let you off the hook, God. And God says, no, don't do that. I keep my promises. Don't let me off the hook. If I've made promises to you, the only question is when, not whether. It's going to happen. So the Lord says to him, no, your servant will not be your heir, for you will have a son of your own who will be your heir. And then the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky and count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you have. So God says, don't let me off the hook. Hold me to my promises because I'm a promise keeper. And now Abraham has a choice. Is he going to believe it or not? Is he going to believe what God told him? And, well, we read the, we read the answer. It says, Abraham, or Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted him as righteous. So... That's faith. That's what Paul was talking about when he wrote to the Romans. It's what he had in mind. We saw last week when he was talking to the Galatians about how God reconnects us to himself, not because of anything we've done, uh, any rituals we've performed, but because God is our Father who loves us and wants to be in a relationship with us. So that's what Paul was getting at. That's what Scripture says. And it's not new. It's not something Paul cooked up. It goes all the way back to you know page 10 of your Bible. So... That should be the end of the passage. That should be the end of the message today. But we need to fast forward 1,500 years from the time of Paul to the Reformation because that's what we've been looking at this whole series. We've been looking at the 500th anniversary of the Reformation because what had happened by the time of the Reformation is people took that line, Abraham trusted God, and God counted as righteous, and they had developed it into a whole set of actions. What did it mean to trust God? How do I know that you've trusted God? And so they developed a whole set of things you had to do to demonstrate your faith. So um, you had to be baptized. If you weren't baptized, it didn't matter if you trusted God. If you weren't baptized, you must not have any faith. 
Um, if you didn't celebrate communion, then you must not have any faith. And by the way, FYI, you can't celebrate communion if you have any unconfessed sins on your, on your conscience. So first of all, you need to confess your sins. You need to receive absolution and do penance. You have to do all these things in order to have faith. So by the time the medieval church had finished with this idea, they had turned faith from um, an attitude of the heart into a list of actions. And honestly, it was so complicated that a lot of people, we know this historically, a lot of people just said, I will never figure this out. It's too hard and it's too complicated. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to wait to the last possible minute. And what I'm going to do is when I'm on my deathbed, I will send for the priest. And what the priest will do is if I haven't been baptized, and a lot of people weren't, if I haven't been baptized, then I will be baptized. And uh, if it's been a while since I celebrated communion, then I will have confession and I will receive absolution. And there's not much penance he can make me do now. And then he will anoint my head with oil and I will slip off into unconsciousness and die and I will go straight to heaven, or at least I won't spend too long in purgatory. And that's what had happened to faith by the time of the Reformers. And the Reformers said, you've got it all backwards. You've turned trust in God into yet one more religious system. You don't have to go to the temple, you don't have to sacrifice a goat or whatever, but you have turned faith into this complicated system, just like your ancestors. And before we laugh at them, Let's recognize a lot of us do this. How many of us have ever been asked, have you put your trust in Jesus? As if it was a box you checked off. You know, yes, when I was in eighth grade, I was in camp, and the, the, the guy asked us, have we put our trust in Jesus? And I said, yes, and I checked that box. That we turn faith into an action rather than an attitude. And the reformer said, no. That's not faith. And one of the problems is our Bibles. Our Bibles get this wrong. Uh, years ago when I went to seminary, one of the things I was looking forward to, because I am kind of a geek, um, I was looking forward to reading the Bible in the original language. And so every week, I still I keep my Greek and my Hebrew up. My Greek's better than my Hebrew. You may notice I preach more from the New Testament. Um, uh, I waded through the Hebrew this week. But one of the things I've found by doing that for the last 12 years is we have really great Bibles. I almost never come across anything in the translation that I that I could object to. It's like, no, our Bibles are really great, and it doesn't matter which one you get. Um, get one you'll read, and you'll have a great translation. So, so I have found that that you know going to seminary to learn the biblical languages wasn't very useful. But I did learn two things that I think are routinely mistranslated in our Bibles today. One of them is Christ, because we don't translate it; we just leave it there in Greek. And it doesn't mean much to a lot of us. It just becomes a label, right? Jesus, whose label is Christ. And it actually means king. And if I got to, if I got to wave my magic wand and change all the Bibles in the world, I would change it to king. And you'll find out why at the end of November when we celebrate Christ the King Sunday, or I would say King the King Sunday. Um, so, um, so that'll happen then. But the other one, the other complaint I've got with uh, our translations is we say belief instead of trust. For the word faith. The word that, that is in the Bible, the word in the original languages that, that is translated faith, um, if they pick a, one, another word besides faith to, to define it, what they routinely pick is belief. We see that in our own translation. It says, Abraham believed God 
and God um, uh, reckon, reckoned it as righteousness. But belief doesn't mean anything. You know, uh, my minor in, in college was in psychology, and I, I love to read, uh, you know, kind of popular psychology. I can't read the real stuff, but I read a lot of popular psychology these days. And one of the things I've learned is that is that psychologists are finding out how easy it is to get people to believe things. They they talk about cognitive bias and they talk about motivated reasoning. That that it's so easy for us to believe things we want to believe. We basically say, is there any one fact that will support my belief? And if there is, I believe it. And if it's something we don't want to believe, then we say, is there an overwhelming uh, necessity for me to believe this? Is there any reason for me to disbelieve it that I can clutch onto? And this is why some of you watch Fox and some of you watch MSNBC. It's why some of you read Breitbart and why some of you read the Huffington Post. Because you want to believe what you want to believe. And so belief is really just not that useful. You know, belief is so easy. We can manufacture our beliefs and we can hold on to them very easily. And that's what psychologists are telling us. Um, and it's what what is the problem with so many people's belief. So I've been trying to think, how can I get it? How can I get at this? And I remembered a friend of mine from work 30 years ago. I had a coworker named Chip Mauer, and Chip had a magic credit card. He was telling us one day at work he had a Sears card, and he never got a bill for it. And he could go and buy some Craftsman tools or a Kenmore appliance and whatever it was uh, uh, he wanted to buy, and he never got the bill. And we're all listening to him tell the story, and we're thinking, oh. Goodness gracious, they will catch up with you. You know, be careful what you do with that card because they're a big corporation. They will eventually find you, Chip, and then you're going to be in real trouble. You're going to have a gigantic bill. And I don't know whatever happened to that. I don't know if they, they eventually got, I, you know, I really don't. I lost track of, um, uh, you know, we were having downsizing all the time. I lost track of uh, Chip, but, but um, hopefully he didn't get downsized and then get the bill. Um, but, um, but, uh, but I was thinking to myself, imagine if you had that credit card. Let me, let, let, me, let me give you a thought experiment. Let's suppose I gave you, you know, uh, an Alaska Airlines credit card like we all have, right? And I said, but this one's different because I'll pay the bills, right? The bills are set up to come to me. What would you do with that credit card? Now, l- let, me, let me give you some ideas. Some people would say, I'm not going to touch that thing. That's too weird. I don't know what to do. I don't even know what to make of that. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to put it in my wallet. And if I am at my last resort, if I have, if I just have no other idea what else to do, I might try it, but only as a last resort because that's just too weird. I don't know what to do with a credit card that somebody else pays, right? So some people would say, no, it's just going to be a last resort. Some people would say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to run an experiment. I'm just going to go buy one thing and see if I get the bill at the end of the month. And if I do, then I'll know I can't trust that credit card. So some people run an experiment. Some people will say, I've got an even better idea for an experiment. I'm going to buy all my usual stuff that I buy every month on this credit card. Because then if it doesn't get paid, I'm no worse off. I still would have those bills anyway, right? But if it does get paid, then I've suddenly made, you know, a lot better deal, right? So some people would say, I'm going to be kind of a little adventurous in my experiment, but I'm still, I'm still hedging my bets. But none of those are faith. Faith is saying, I'm going to go paint the town. I'm going to go find out where the limit is, right? 
I, I don't know what the credit, you know, it doesn't say $10,000 or what. I don't know what the limit is. I'm going to go find out. And so I'm going to run into town. I'm going to buy everything that's shiny and new, everything I had ever wanted, everything that looks neat to me. I'm going to buy it on that credit card. And that's faith. The other is belief. It's like, yeah, I believe I have a credit card in my wallet. But I don't have any faith in it. I've never trusted it. But when you go out and you start spending, if you start running up bills on that credit card, that's faith. And what Paul is talking about, what Abraham had, the reason Abraham is the person we look to as the father of our faith, is Abraham heard what God said. Abraham, um, I'm going to give you a grace and mercy credit card with no limit. And Abraham said, okay. And Abraham started spending. Now, one of the neat things about Abraham, if you read his story, he, he didn't have that faith every day, right? There's days where he kind of said, you know, I don't know about that. But also Abraham did the most amazing acts of faith, trusting that God would bail him out, that that credit card was valid. And that's what Paul is saying we have. He's saying what a few people got in the Old Testament, we all now have because of Christ. We all have a grace and mercy credit card that God picks up the bill for. And so my question for you is, what kind of faith do you have? Is your faith a belief that's in your wallet and maybe you'll bust it out in the case of an emergency? Or is it something you lean on every day? Do you go to town looking for ways to spend the grace and mercy that God has promised to give you? Do you say, huh, you know, with this grace and mercy credit card, I could begin healing this relationship. I could conquer this addiction. I could sort out my actual dollars and cents finances. With this grace and mercy credit card, I could face what's coming at me on Monday at work. Is that the kind of faith you have? Do you have a grace and mercy credit card that God picks up the bills for? Or do you just believe it's there in the wallet? I might use it someday if I have to. Because faith is not an action. It's an attitude that our actions reveal. Let's be people of faith. Let's paint the town red with God's grace and mercy credit card. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the connection that Jesus has made to to reconnect us to you. It's not something we did. It's not something that we had to ask for or certainly anything we deserve, but it is simply a gift from a loving Father. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to lean our lives against your promises. And help us to have the courage to run up a debt that we cannot pay. Trusting in your grace and mercy. We pray it in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.